Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with Assistant Professor of Environmental Analysis, Guillermo Douglas Jaimes, a researcher who focuses on the social and spatial determinants of health. Welcome, Guillermo. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Um, let's start with the sort of winding path you, you, yeah. you took to, to becoming a professor. Uh, when did you first discover your interest in the environment and in, in studying the environment? You know, that's a great question. And it's a question that I was, you know, it, as many of you know, if you've ever filled out applications, you know, you have to always kind of craft that narrative for yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. where's that, that moment that I started <laughs> that really set me off on this path? And for a long time, I actually struggled with figuring out what was that spark. And I think I've come to understand my history uh, as a way that many folks actually encounter environment is through these multiple small bits. And so I grew up in Southeast Los Angeles in the city of Bell, California, right next to Vernon and the, the very industrial heart of LA County. And, you know, I noticed this after leaving my, my neighborhood, when I was little, we'd go to the state parks or we'd go to, to, to Ensenada um, or to the beaches. And every time we'd come back, there'd be this smell. And I'd be like, what is this? Why does it stink in my neighborhood? <laughs> you know, and realizing the, that, you know, this wasn't, the, you know, I, that I took for granted that this smell existed when I was there. And only when I left and came back that I would notice this difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was kind of there in the back of my mind. Um, but also going to those those state parks, uh, you know, going to the beach, going to the to the natural environment, and kind of finding pleasure, enjoying that, um, also inspired my interest. And then I grew up in the '80s, where we actually had a lot of messaging, like Captain Planet, and you know, pushes <laughs> uh-huh. for recycling, yeah, yeah. and you know, those really informed kind of my environmental consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and I was a total nerd. I mean. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, but I would look, you know, read National Geographic and watch PBS. And I remember they had a, um, a lot of coverage on the recycling, kind of the trash problems. And so these kind of just formed my interest in environment. And early on, I didn't really know what to do with that or mm-hmm. kind of where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I got into college, uh, you know, I studied environmental science and I got into these questions of environmental science. But I, I, I was... I was feel like I was missing something because the focus um, at UC Riverside in my track was really towards the regulatory side of things. Mm. And like, how do we protect the environment? And that was great. I wanted that. But I felt there was missing this, the human component of why do we care about the environment? Why, you know, who benefits when we protect the environment and who has not benefited when we've protected some aspects of the environment? Mm. And so these questions of justice and environmental justice started to form to, to, and Mm. so, so really my path has been this multifaceted uh, kind of way and kind of this incremental kind of push towards this environmental field. Um, and then we can talk more about how that's morphed into kind of my, my interest in global health. Um, it was really formed from that environmental justice as I got to um, in, be engaged with projects that were dealing with uh, disparate impacts that communities had. Um, this is like uh, in my college years, um, no, post-college when I did uh, uh, the Peace Corps. Uh, and got to be internationally and, and see some of these environmental threats happening and, and knowing that these problems weren't just happening in the U.S., but they were happening globally. You, you mentioned your, your experience not only growing up in, in, in L.A., but um, 
how can you explain to us how do the place and neighborhood we live in yeah. how does it affect our health yeah so that's it's very interesting because i think many of us have this conception of place mm -hmm. and it differs for everybody um, but we have i think growing understanding that you know the area where you live impacts your health you know if you live close to a freeway you know, if you live close to a factory that's spewing some toxic fumes. Um, so I think there's some aspects of these environmental exposures to threats that, that we have a pretty good understanding that the closer you are to it, the worse you are. Um, and there and there's been moves in the environmental justice world to use maps as a way to highlight, you know, who's impacted. And it's unfortunate that many of the maps that we rely on to highlight these disparities also reflect a disproportionate impact of low income and communities of color. And that's the legacy of, of, of segregation and the legacies of, of the, the ways in which um, humans have been, you know, in, at least here in the US and in other parts of the world where we're pushed apart for various um, factors of who we are, mm -hmm. whether it's race, um, ethnicity, um, caste, you know, um, your class. And so there, I think there's an understanding that the, you know, where people live close to these, uh, these, these environmental threats is, is going to cause some harm. But the flip side is also where you live close to environmental goods. So mm -hmm. like access to open space, parks, um, but also around the world, which things that I think in the U.S. we often take for granted, except in some instances when it becomes a crisis, like thinking like Flint, you know, the access to clean water, um, access to consistent electricity. Uh, which means you can store medicines in your fridge mm -hmm. or, you know, like if you're using, you have diabetes um, and you need to keep your insulin, um, you know, just having air conditioning so you don't get overheated uh, or also having, you know, sanitation. So there's not flowing sewage, um, having, um, you know, paved roads so you can get, so you don't have these um, trip and fall accidents. Um, so there's things that are basic services that we often take for granted in the parts of the world, particularly parts of urban uh, areas that have been expanding most recently in the global south. Um, um, where folks are being uh, exposed to these these bads. Now, it's one thing to be interested in and aware of the environment. It's another thing to want to teach mm -hmm. others about it. Yeah. Uh, how did you decide you wanted to become a college professor? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I for you know I can say this when I was when I was young, um, I grew up in a family where we, no, no one went to college, um, and it was. I think my parents, you know, did their best and they saw education as an important part of our growing up and they encouraged us to pursue education. They didn't know what that meant. <laughs> they didn't know. They just knew you got to go to college. Mm -hmm, and for mm -hmm. them, that's just one category college. That's it. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, so I was exposed to, you know, uh, in high school, I went to a private Catholic school and it was actually a college prep school. And I actually got exposed to a lot of uh, resources that to encourage you to go to college. And it, I didn't, I missed out on knowing that small liberal arts colleges had some funding. So I had focused my work on you know, the state colleges. Mm -hmm. um, but there was this, that, and then my interest in like the PBS, Nova Specials, and I would see folks with their PhD at the end of their name. And I was like, oh, that looks cool, <laughs> you know? And so those were kind of the, the things that were drawing me. And I, I love teaching. Uh, I love, uh, you know, thinking about questions and problems, um, but I also want, love to kind of share that knowledge with others. And, you know, I had some college professors that really inspired me. And I thought, you know, this is this would be cool. I didn't know what that looked like and I didn't know how to get there, but mm -hmm. it was something kind of this little bit that was in the back of my head, my mm -hmm. mind that was saying, go that direction. Yeah. You've, you've written that um, 
in order to become a college professor, you had to hustle. Yeah. What do yeah. you mean by that? Oh, man. You know, it, it's it's a hard, I think, too often, or maybe not often enough, we just don't think about the the privileges that come with being in academia and the privileged position that one often needs to be in to be and thrive in academia. Uh, it's, and I, you know, I had to, so my path towards getting to here has been long. You know, like I have uh, several, I was going to college, then I was in the Peace Corps and I worked in this um, super fun project. And then I went to my master's and got a master's in, uh, in urban planning from UCLA. And then I uh, was able to travel the world as part of this internship that I got in Beijing. Uh, and then mm -hmm. I worked as a re air, uh, air pollution research manager uh, for a number of years. Um, but that came right at the time of the, the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And so here I was with a freshly minted master's in urban planning at a time when I was actually abroad, when many of my colleagues who had also graduated had secured jobs in, the, in urban planning and their organizations folded because mm. there was no work for urban mm -hmm. planning. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a contraction in the real estate market and yeah. that prevented a contraction in many of the urban planning associated uh, fields. And so I came back to the U.S. from that trip and, you know, was fortunate that I got this uh, air pollution research managing um, uh, job at UC with UCLA, which then led me to go to UC Irvine. Um, but then it didn't pay enough, didn't have enough hours. Mm -hmm. So I was also fortunate that I had colleagues of mine who were working at the um, Antioch, uh, Antioch, College, Antioch University in L.A. Um, and they had this Masters of Urban Sustainability program. And because I had been doing this research managing, they thought, oh, this I may be a good fit to teach their research methods course. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to do that on the side. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Um, the air pollution you know, managing job was contracting because our I was contracted for two years and then there was it it meant I had to but then they wanted me to continue on, but the funding reduced. So then it was like, well, they want to keep me, but I couldn't stay full time. So then I had also reached out to Communities for Better Environment. They were hiring for a part-time research manager. And so I got to work with them. Uh, and so I was holding multiple jobs all at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, in order to stay in the field because yeah. it was something I was really passionate about. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it required a hustle to, to, to stay here. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the Peace Corps. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? How did, how did you choose the Peace Corps and yeah. what did you learn from the experience? So, you know, the coming from a family where my parents are from Mexico. So I, 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 we'd gone to Mexico a few times to visit my mother's and my dad's hometowns. And I really was like, oh, I'd love to travel, you know. And so that was always there. And then when I got to college, I'd heard about study abroad opportunities. And it became clear to me that we couldn't afford it to mm -hmm. do a study abroad. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was down about that for a long time. And then I had heard about the Peace Corps and this opportunity to go abroad and study and, and live abroad for a couple of years and actually apply um, my degree, uh, mm -hmm. this environmental science degree that I'd been working on that I didn't really know what that would look like in terms of in applying it anywhere. And so going to the Peace Corps was a great opportunity to do that. And I'd also had interest in, in deepening my language capabilities in Spanish 
um, or learning a new language. And um, I was fortunate to get to go to Bolivia, where I got to improve my Spanish. Uh, and I thought I was going to be able to learn some of the indigenous languages. And I tried. I, I, I was to training in Quechua, mm -hmm. um, one of the indigenous languages. Mm -hmm. But then I got sent to an area that didn't have many mm -hmm. Quechua speakers. So mm -hmm. I didn't get to, to, to deepen that. But I did mm -hmm. get to improve my Spanish, which was the, great. It's the language of the Mayans, right? The, the Quechua is the language of the Inca. Inca. I'm Inca. mixing it up. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, but actually, these are so the these are contemporary people that these are yeah. the Quechua is their name that, that that's used They're, to describe mm -hmm. the, the ethnic group. Yeah, you just mentioned the Peace Corps and how it added to your you you found a way you couldn't study abroad, so then you went to Peace Corps, and then you also mentioned um, internship in Beijing and your yeah. uh, project with um, air pollution. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about those other experiences that have yeah. informed your your career? So. Um, at the end of my my master's program, one of the opportunities we had was to do this internship in Beijing with the Chinese Academy of Urban Planning and Design. Mm. And I was I jumped at the opportunity to apply to that. And I got to spend two months in Beijing um, working with the Chinese Academy. Um, it, you know, I didn't have Mandarin in mm -hmm. my background. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a little. I learned enough to get me to and from work and to order my food. Um, but I did rely on some of my colleagues who came with me who had some Mandarin experience. Mm -hmm. um, but the key things that I took away from that experience was the bigness of the world and the smallness of the world. And the, the you know, the, the fast pace of development that, that was happening in Beijing. This is 2007, so the year before mm. the Olympics. And so I'm, I haven't been back since, so I don't know how, you know, what's been going on now, but there was this energy in the city. Um, and I, I would walk to the, my place of work mm -hmm. and I, it was in those two months, I saw three buildings start and finish. Wow. And it was, it was shocking to wow. me that mm -hmm. this kind of pace of yeah. growth and what that meant for the environment. And also what that meant for the people that used to live in these areas. Um, there was an area where these historic homes have gone back for, for centuries and um, were being cleared. And some were being preserved for tourists. Um, so you would walk by and you'd think, oh, here's the, here's the cool old part. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, it also came with the stuff that was happening on the other side, mm -hmm. the stuff that, you know, where you couldn't see easily. Mm -hmm. And so that really struck me with the, the importance of... Uh, how urbanization, you know, is having some, some impacts. massive impacts mm -hmm. on the earth. Um, yeah. And then yeah, the air pollution, air pollution yeah. study. So that was, you know, that was super informative. Um, I, uh, the study involved putting uh, backpacks, giving a backpack with an air monitor to folks to wear for um, a week or so. Um, and that and was in L.A.? This or? is in L.A. Okay. So there were several projects. I actually mm -hmm. worked on one in, in, in Wilmington around the port of L.A., one in Boyle Heights. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I was at Irvine, I worked with uh, pregnant women um, for, for two years um, g doing this air monitoring with them um, at their homes and for personal monitoring throughout, mm -hmm. their, mm -hmm. um, throughout their pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the key takeaways from that were, you know, that exposure. The closer you are to major roadways, you're, you're going to have more exposure, the more time you're spending outside mm -hmm. on those major roadways. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, particularly for say, you know, walking kids to school, you know, it makes sense, maybe walk on the smaller street, 
you know, where there isn't as much traffic. Um, but the other thing that was in it, because I've, so in addition to sending out these air monitors, um, uh, you know, I actually got to train students to put these air monitors out in the homes across, you know, mm -hmm. LA and Orange County. Mm -hmm. But I also got to interview um, pregnant women who were, um, uh, who we would give them these monitors. And it was this very standardized form, you mm -hmm. know, like, yes, no kind of questions or fill in the blank, you know. But the, after the conversations that come out of that, something that struck me were, um, for the particular low income, you know, mm -hmm. folks. And there was this one, um, one, one of those interviews that I had where uh, uh, this woman, this young woman, this is actually not the pregnancy study, but it was the one in, I think it was in Boyle Heights. And I was asking her how, you know, how long her commute was and what, what modes of transportation she took. And she said, she walked. And I was like, okay, cool, walk. And then it's like, oh, how long? She said, two hours. And mm -hmm. I was like, did I hear that right? Two hours? <laughs> and she said, no, it's two hours. And I was like, wow. Okay. And then, you know, wow. so I kind of probed a little and she said, yeah, you know, and then, you know, when it's, you know, when I'm like, when I treat myself, I take the bus. Oh my God. Now at the time, the bus cost $1.25 each way. And so when I also asked her her income and the cat, it was categorized, you know, um, mm -hmm. less than $25,000 mm -hmm. a year between 25 and 35 and blah, blah. And I gave her those options and she said, oh, way less than 25. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was just yeah. that it was really eye opening because I'd often seen myself as, you know, not well off growing up. But, you know, it, it puts into perspective just the degradations of what poverty means, right. you know, and that category of less than twenty five thousand really it really encapsulates a broad range of experiences, mm -hmm. you know, and and. It, it's, it's actually, this is one of the, the reasons why I do the work the way I do it is, you know, I understand the importance of having those categories for easily communicating with folks, particularly mm -hmm. policymakers. Mm -hmm. However, those categories, when they're so, when they're too large or when they don't capture the, the, the bigger disparities, you know, they can also hide, you know, who's really most impacted. Mm -hmm. Well, they, should, they, should, they show some uh, preconceptions, right? Yeah. That that what we can be very, very poverty, wrong. Right. Yeah. That everyone that the, the experience of anyone up to twenty five thousand is going to be pretty much the same. Exactly. And it's not exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Let's uh, let's talk about your research. Yeah. Um, the you've referred to your research area as urban health equity. Yeah. Can you break that down for us? Yeah. So. It's urban. I live in the urban areas. <laughs> um, more than half the world population lives in urban areas. I mean, we've we've since passed that tipping point of being an urban globe. But what does urban mean? You know, like I mentioned, uh, these the fastest growing cities in the world are growing uh, on the parts of their, their they're growing their cities uh, in areas that don't have the the basic services that I think we often take for granted. You know, that water uh, provision, clean water, sanitation, trash collection, electricity. These are areas that are often called slums. Um, and, you know, so I think the, my, the attention that I play to, to the urban are how do we look at the urban through the, the different ways that it, that it impacts people's health. And health is important because, you know, we want to be, want to live good lives, mm -hmm. you know. And, and, and I use health in this broad sense that incorporates both access to environmental goods and also access to basic services. Um, because you really can't disentangle those. You know, we try, I think in the US we do a, a there, there, we've, we've done a better job of understanding that, you know, 
the environment isn't something that's out there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that it's everywhere. And if we're going to protect it or we're going to, you know, make improvements to it, we need to view it as a whole. Um, and then the equity piece is understanding that there is a need for justice, that we know we should all have access to these environmental goods and we should and no one should have access to these environmental bads. You know, so it's it's a way to kind of look at where in the world are these problems happening? Mm -hmm. You know, what is the the that the focal point, you know, that can kind of bring us together that might say, OK, we should all improve our health. And then, you know, understand that there's this justice aspect that, you know, we should all have a stake. We all have a stake in it. You mentioned your um, master's was in urban planning yeah. from UCLA. So two part question. Yeah. Was was that decision to get that degree conscious of you yeah. know what you were you wanted to go? And now that you're in for more focused on environmental analysis, how does your urban planning background inform yeah. what you do now? Yeah. So uh, I, I graduated my, my undergrad was environmental science. And I, I'd always been, you know, a city person and focused on city issues. Mm -hmm. um, so when I started learning that there was an urban planning thing, I was like, oh, I got really excited. Mm -hmm. um, and so I sought out environmental uh, urban planning programs with some focus on the environment. And when I got to UCLA, it was fortunate that at the time there was a lot of attention to these policies to improve the environment. Um, you know, growing up in L.A., one of the worst air quality cities in the world. And I think also noting that, like, I mean, when I was little, you know, we actually, you know, we didn't have snow days. We had smog days. So they actually canceled class and shortened class times or kept us in from, mm -hmm. from doing recess because it was a third stage smog alert day. Mm. So those were, again, part of that formation of yeah. why I care about the environment. Yeah. But also I noticed that as I grew older, had fewer and fewer of those days. Now I have to admit that little me was a little sad that I didn't have the smog day to keep me home from school sometimes. But the realization of why, you know, I'm good with not having that. Um, but it was, you know, those these policies that actually were happening through the city of L.A. and the, and the region, you know, the California Air Resource Control Board, uh, the Southern California Air Quality Management District, um, these rules that I, me I remember very clearly um, you know, did you ever watch, that was like Jay Leno, the late night show, mm -hmm. the late show. And there was this joke that he was given about how, you know, the absurdity that the, the regional air quality board um, had demanding catalytic converters in lawnmowers or banning, you know, um, uh, charcoal. And it was, you know, that was the joke mm -hmm. that Californians, L.A., were such, you know, we're, we're kind of loony I'm that we're, yeah. we're making these very, you know, oddball types of legislation. And yet those policies were key to bringing, to improving the air quality in LA. So as the population of Southern California expanded, mm -hmm. the air pollution levels, air quality actually, air quality improved, air pollution levels went down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these small fixes were very important. And so those are the kinds of things that I was interested in. Um, and I also, you know, was interested in, in water um, and there was this revitalization of the L.A. River. Uh, and so the, I got really into the L.A. River uh, revitalization plans that were happening. And it, it brought me into these public commenting area, um, public forum where f folks were asked to come in and comment on, you know, what was the vision for this river? And one of the key things that kind of drew me there was also the ways in which they were approaching community. And, and actually was really heartened that they, you know, had materials in Spanish. 
you know, this is in the mid 2000s, right? So mm-hmm. they had materials in Spanish, they had materials in in Chinese, you know, um, they had materials in in Korean because you were, uh, and so these there was an attention to being inclusive and involving people. Mm-hmm. And so those were kind of really fascinating kind of ways of thinking about how do we do this work in intersectionality, kind of understanding, you know, the importance of reaching out. And at the time, I don't think we had intersectionality in our dialogue, but that was, you know, kind of a growing understanding that the need to reach out to this diverse community. Um, But while I was doing my work in urban planning, I I also felt this lack, like I wasn't getting the, like I, I was getting this urban planning policies kind of background, but then I was... I felt like I was missing out on some environmental science, environmental policy, and the the health aspects that were also starting to emerge. And so, afterward, I was like after some reflection of kind of where it would go, um, I had found out about the environmental science policy and management program at UC Berkeley, and so that's where I applied for my PhD, um, and that's where I got to get here <laughs> as well and put it all together. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's dig a little deeper into yeah. your health research. Yeah. Um, you do a lot of field work. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us about that? How, how does that yeah. how does that work? Yeah. So I've been really fortunate, you know, to get to go to Brazil. So when I so I'll just start off where I when I got to Berkeley, I had originally envisioned doing a project in LA um, focused on air quality mm-hmm. and really focusing on this kind of mismatch between the the data that we get from the regional um, air management districts because um, they set up these air monitors kind of. Uh, there's a sampling of air monitors that's set out throughout the region. And then you get on the news, it says, oh, today's a good air quality day. If you live in, you know, on the, on the coast, maybe it's moderate if you live inland, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. unhealthy if you live further mm-hmm. inland. So these are the kinds of, you know, that broad messaging, which is, can be useful for folks to decide how to, you know, go through their day. But folks who live right next to polluting facilities, you know, when they're told, oh, it's a good day. And they look out their window and they're like, I don't know where you're thinking, but this is not a good day, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know. And so that air quality work I was doing, you know, looking at those micro impacts and realizing there's a mismatch. I got really interested in this question of how it is that these um, micro scale, you know, kind of data can reflect the what's missing from the macro scale data. And so when I got to Berkeley, I was really interested in doing this work. But this was also one of those moments in my life where I was like, ah. You know, like I've been doing environmental justice type work in L.A. And I had that experience in the Peace Corps, but I really hadn't done much internationally. And I was really wanting that and knowing that, you know, your Ph.D. is the culmination of your education. So this would be one of the the the, the last times that I would have to to be able to devote, you know, myself to do these kind of to focus on something. And it's not true, but it, it felt <laughs> like that at the time. Mm-hmm. And so when I was reaching out to my to my advisors, um, I was cultivating, so I was working with Rachel Marlo Frosch, um, environmental science policy and management, and I'd also, uh, and so she was my mentor. And then I was also reaching out to folks like Jason Corburn, who was in the or the, the School of Urban Planning, and I was asking, I had this conversation. I was like, so, you know, I hear I hear my interest. I'm just going to throw it out there because I'm really, you know, want to continue my environmental justice work. <laughs> yeah, want to do my environmental justice work. You know, I'm I'm focused on, you know, I had done some GIS, some mapping, you know, uh, in my in my ma- in my master's program, which I was really wanted to deepen. But I was also like, I want to look at these kind of mismatched questions. But also, I'm interested in doing some work internationally and kind of seeing how these issues apply globally. And he is like, well, you know, we're doing this project where we're looking at the 2010 Brazilian census and trying to see, you know, what the what that can tell us because Brazil um, as few one of the few countries in the world where they actually counted every single person in their country 
but put them as well, acknowledge that the this urban um, designation of of favela, you mm-hmm. know, informal mm-hmm. settlement. They use the, the 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 federal government uses the term um, agglomerado subnormais or subnormal mm-hmm. informal agglomeration, and so there's this data, this massive data set that tells us, you know, where people live, and this was in conjunction with the time where there had been. Um, this push to improve social services to these parts of the country, these parts of urban areas, um, through various social welfare programs, and so it was this—it it was the possibility to actually, you know, do pre-post analysis of how effective these programs were. Mm-hmm. If we could see what the conditions were in these areas before these were implemented, and then after they were implemented, you know, with the 2020 census that would be coming up. So that was the the thrust of it, and he was really intrigued. That, but my, my background and having done this community work, having also through my master, I had a chance to go to Brazil, which I didn't mention, but that was mm. um, something else mm-hmm. I got to do, which got me thinking about Brazil. And, you know, he you know was interested in mapping that data, but also interested in having an eye towards looking beyond the numbers, you know, actually seeing the stories behind that. And I was like raising my hand, like, can I do that? Can I do that? <laughs> so that got me into this work in Brazil and looking at the census as this entry point to look at the... Um, urban health equity um, dimensions. And again, the because the census had information about the provision of these basic services, which we know are connected to these health outcomes, that became the proxy measure to see how healthy we think these populations are. And then when I got to Brazil and started doing some work, and, I, and you know, we had some colleagues there, and I remember I, I had now learned the term favela, I had learned this term AGSN, and so here I am, I'm like, okay, well, I got these terms down. And I talked to this colleague of ours, and I mentioned the term favela, and she says, ah, comunidades. And it was this very gentle kind of nudging Don't call to them go over here. And I yeah. thought, okay, that's interesting. Uh-huh. I haven't heard this word before. I will, you know, make modifications to my, my vocabulary. But then as I was searching, you know, information about this, I learned that there has been this conversation about, you know, kind of in, in lines with that kind of politically correct language, but also uh, a question about identity how people thought and perceived mm. themselves. And, you know, the term favela has these pejorative connotations or is employed pejoratively by some. At the same time, there are folks who are embracing it and using it with pride. Mm. And then there, there's folks yeah. who are using it to commercialize. And mm. particularly this was around, you know, before the 2016 Olympics. And so there was this, you know, movement of kind of marketing the favela as a product, you know, mm-hmm. enticing mm-hmm. tourists. And I learned all this through doing this, I, my original interest was looking at the census data and I can just download this data because the, the federal government has this website portal where you can just download the data, has the shape files for the census tracts and the urban areas, and you can map it out. But seeing this mismatch between how the, the government talked about these places and how people both perceived them and, and interacted with them. And so that was really the, became the crux of my dissertation was mm-hmm. unpacking how this place, which has multitude of terms and is described by multiple folks differently for different reasons, how do we actually use data, you know, that we claim is this, the official numbers to say something meaningful about those places? And so one of the things I did uh, for that, that dissertation work was to use the, the census's own language 
and their own um, definitions for those categories to say, okay, how do they determine these areas that were subnormal agglomerations? And it was based partly on the provision of, of basic services, water, sanitation, trash collection, electricity, and then the, 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 the land tenures, people own their homes. Is it legal? Did they, mm -hmm. um, because one aspect of these communities is often that these are occupied lands that okay. folks have taken over land mm -hmm. that was, you know, not being utilized. And an interesting quirk about Brazil is that the constitution actually gives people the right to claim unoccupied or un, uh, uh, underutilized lands. So, yeah. so while there is mm -hmm. a claim that it's an illegal occupation, the constitution kind of guarantees it. So, so it's this gray area, <laughs> yeah. right? So these terms, the, the definition also has some, it's, it's squishy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so what I decided, so, but I didn't have good information about that. So I said, okay, let's just take those basic services Let's let's recategorize them. Let's recategorize the census tracts on the access to those services, and let's see how this shakes out. And you know, did this reclassification, and also highlighted that this AGSN term that was being used doesn't capture all the areas that lack these basic services. Mm -hmm. So there was something missing there. Mm -hmm. um, I also had the good fortune of working with folks from um, the Centro de Promoção de Saúde, the Center for Health Promotion in Rio de Janeiro, and they were. Um, doing engaging some mapping project with community members um, through the support of UNICEF, the United Nations mm -hmm. um, Ch Child and Infant Fund. Um, and they actually collected um, data, GPS data with smartphones, and they tagged parts of their neighborhood where they said, oh, this was a, an area that has like a place for kids to play. Um, or this is an area where there's a nursery, or here's an area where people throw trash in the street, and here's an open sewer, and here's a you know hole in the sidewalk, or here's an area where women feel unsafe because you know people they're being catcalled. You know, so these were all parts of their of their neighborhood that they felt attachment to, mm -hmm. the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. And so I mapped that data, you know, because they had different different neighborhoods, um, different favelas that were part of um, comunidades that were part of this this mapping process, and I mapped that and then put their data on top of the maps with the um, with the official designations for these urban areas. And I noted where they lined up and where they didn't, mm. you know. So highlighting again that the, mm -hmm. the different ways in which people conceive of place, you know, using this type of data. Uh, and it, it, it was interesting that, you know, with between favelas, you could see a more stark differentiation. You know, and even I had conversations with folks and they say, oh, you know, that's that favela, that's, they, they do their work over there. Uh, but then between the favela, non-favela, the, the formal part of the city where some of these services were, they didn't just catalog where the, the, the positive services were, but they also cataloged where there were, you know, problems, where they saw trash. So there was both an interest in making improvements on areas that wouldn't be considered part of their official community, hmm. you know, so there was this connection. And so it really kind of, it, it, it challenges these questions of how exactly can we draw these boundaries around place? Hmm. And... And that I think is actually, you know, set me up where now when I did a postdoc, I uh, was able to do it in Brazil, work with some colleagues at the Federal uh, Fluminense University in Niterói, um, Universidade Federal Fluminense. Mm -hmm. And they were doing some work, particularly this was in 26, 17. Um, and they had started, you know, the Zika crisis had been hitting Brazil really hard and mm -hmm. Rio especially. Mm -hmm. And so... These folks had been looking at, you know, women who um, had been exposed to the Zika virus during their early pregnancy and how, you know, the impacts it has on the child, which, you know, children are born with um, microcephaly or other neurological impacts as it, it delays their growth. And, you know, 
they had been collecting these data, you know, they, they'd been actually treating women. And, and that was one of the benefits of their national health system is they actually made it a priority to give women access to these health care services mm -hmm. um, above and beyond what people would normally get um, during this time. And they they would be so they'd be seen regularly. They get blood drawn and get the CAT scans and then, you know, but they would be tracked as well. And so I was able to see I was able to be there and see that interaction happening in the clinic, but also then look at the data and see how we can um, make sense of, you know, where the impact is happening strongest. And, you know, I'd been doing this work um, with the maps, the official maps, and I was like, okay, maybe, you know, you have address data, let's go, let's geocode it. Let's, you know, probably know, you may not know the word geocoding, but you often know, like if you were using those wayfinding applications on your smartphone, you know, Google, Apple Maps, um, you put your address in, or even links like Yelp, you put an address in and it pops Share you on a map location. somewhere, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So that's the geocoding. There's a there's a process out there where it takes this address that's in text form and gives you a, a location on the earth. And we have this data set that has these addresses. And it's like, this is this should be pretty straightforward. Just take those addresses, plop it on your uh, in your in your computer, and you'll get a point. And it doesn't work that way. Hmm. Um, and it's not surprising if some of these areas are also areas that lack these basic services and also lack recognition of their roads. Um, if people don't know the address because they don't know the name of the road that they live on. Um, if people don't know the neighborhood because the colloquial, the, the way people speak about their neighborhood um, to each other versus how it's officially demarcated. Take a second can differ. right, keep going. Yeah. So <laughs> so there is so it, you know, you get a result. If you put an address in, um, these geocoders will give you a result. But I was looking at this and I was like, this doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. This doesn't match with what we would expect. And so this is really kind of the thrust of my my research has been so far is kind of unpacking these data, these address data, and to see how well, how well, how we can refine them, how we can, how we can utilize the data that we currently have so we can actually say something meaningful about where people live and how that may impact their health. Um, but also how we can improve our ability to track where these people are so we can better have an understanding of how um, those place health connections operate. Yeah. You, um, Mentioned your work in Brazil for your dissertation mm -hmm. and your postdoc too, um, and I believe you've taken some of your students yeah. as well. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about so, that? Yeah, so so it was really fortunate. I got a uh, a grant from the Hirsch Foundation um, last year to to actually support this line of research, mm -hmm. and this research actually was seeded at the end of my postdoc because after having that struggle of, of analyzing the addresses, I thought, well, let's let's just go to where we can find places that we know exist and just see if we can, if those addresses map up. And so we use health data from this one neighborhood uh, just outside of Niteroi called San Gonzalo and this area called Jardin Catarina, which first of all is an area that every, all of my colleagues and, and many folks would refer to it as the world's largest flat favela. Mm -hmm. So if you've heard the word favela, if you ever see City of God, mm -hmm. um, you might have imagined the favela as just like these communities on the hill. Yeah. Right. And Interesting enough, City of God, Cidade de Deus, isn't actually a favela. Uh, it's it, it, There is a piece of it that is a considered an official favela, but the larger urban area is not an official favela. So these terms actually don't match up. Yeah. And in, and it's actually interesting because similarly, Jardin Catarina, everyone refers to it as the world's largest flat favela. 
also isn't considered unofficially a favela. Mm. Um, actually might fall under the category of lochiamiento, which is this area that um, where people are given, uh, there's plots of land that are parceled out by somebody and people build their own houses. So it's not too surprising that the materials people are using to build their own homes would match materials that are used in areas like favela. Mm -hmm. These are all self-built homes for the mm -hmm. most part. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but that's, so with this area, you know, it's like I was at one of my colleagues who worked with the the Ministry of Health in San Gonzalo, you know, got got interested in the mapping work that I was showing them, um, kind of these mismatches um, and also the challenges of, of getting the good geocoding data. And so we said, OK, let's do this pilot project. We'll go out to these these health posts. We'll map them. We'll take our smartphones and we'll just see, you know, how that matches. And so we did that work. And that really highlighted that there was a lot of those addresses the official address has this designation that says S slash N, which in Portuguese translates to sem numero, without, without a number. Mm. So the official address doesn't have a building number. Hmm. Wow. And so you can't geocode. You can't get a, 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 a precise position, uh, you know, more than just the midway point of that road segment. Hmm. Right. And so, you know, we did this work and... Um, um, actually, I had, a, I had a student that I was working with at um, Cal State Monterey Bay, who's now gone on to um, UC Berkeley's uh, Master's of Public Health program. And he helped me to map this. And we presented this work at the AAG, the American Association of Geographers, but then wanted to take this further and say, OK, you know, we have this pilot work. We did 10 of these health posts. And we had these issues. Can we expand this? Can we look at a, a other parts of Rio to see, you know, do those addresses match up? And so in this Hirsch grant, applied to get... Um, to take students to Brazil with me to actually um, test out because the idea is to actually work with my colleagues in Brazil to actually implement this with community health workers who can then use a smartphone application and while going out to um, deliver treatment for tuberculosis because people visit the homes, they can actually test the address quality versus the, um, mm. the GPS coordinates. The, so what we wanted to do is can we find a phone that will work for them? You know, can we, and how well would this mapping work you know, how well will it work in the area? And so um, I worked with some students that identified 46 locations throughout Rio, areas that we thought were, you know, well known. So, you know, it's not going to, uh, so safe <laughs> to go around the city, um, but also places that we know will geocode well. And so we took, um, they took actually those locations on Google Earth. We used them, the, the map, uh, the, the satellite image to highlight where on, you know, where on the map we we're going to stand. So we looked for geographical features that were in the, in the, on the satellite image that we could stand at. So we had like a, a close approximation of where we were. Mm -hmm. And then when we, when we validated to see those GPS locations, how far we were from, you know, uh, that, that, the plan, that, the part that we were supposed to stand on, so we could see how well those phones worked. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they did. Uh, mm -hmm. We went down there and actually we're going to be uh, presenting this work at the American Association of Geographers Conference in, in D.C. And we're also working to write this up and get this published. Um, and then this of all, has, all has been helping us to do this work with the community health workers in Rio. And I've been going down to Rio to do some trainings with these community health workers and my colleagues who will actually implement the study. And I'll will be able to analyze the data for them. You mentioned how the micro feeds the macro yeah. and uh, your work is very down to earth and detailed and mm -hmm. focused on specific communities and, and specific addresses. Yeah. Um, 
How does that feed back up into policymaking, yeah. bigger issues, even global issues like uh, emerging diseases and, yeah. and, and climate change? Well, there's two, two threads where this is coming from. One is you probably have heard the word big data. So big data refers to this massive amount of data that we have about the world. And our, you know, because of all the sensors that we have out there, um, the sensors that we carry in our pockets, if you have a smartphone, you know, the, the all those little digital bits that we leave behind, um, there's all this information that exists. Uh, and even things that are volunteered, like if you ever go to Yelp, looking for that, you know, that next sushi restaurant, and you see, you know, all the rankings, you know, which is the better one. Um, so big data gives us this false sense that, you know, we have data from everywhere. If we just analyze it, we can say something about the world and maybe develop policies to address problems or challenges that we see. And what I think my work does is it highlights, you know, even data sets. So because Brazil has a socialized medicine and it's national, you know, everyone has access to, you know, in theory has access to national health. They also carry these, these, um, these databases have information about these patients and this geographic information with their address. And so you could, you could plop those on a map. And we've been, I actually have done these studies with my colleagues in Brazil where we've been mapping this work and we have a couple of publications that are coming out that are trying to, you know, show where folks who have had different health issues, you know, are located um, throughout the region. But the caveat is that, you know, these addresses aren't, we're not sure exactly mm -hmm. that these are, they're giving us the results that we expect. And so one of the key questions that we've been looking at um, is if we can map, you know, where the instances of these diseases are, folks who live inside the AGSN, which is a proxy for favela, for comunidade, uh, or outside. And, you know, we often expected that there would be some disparity, you know, from folks who live in these communities that are being deprived, that they would have greater incidence of disease. And we haven't been seeing that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it could be that there isn't a difference. Mm -hmm. It could also be that we're not mapping the difference <laughs> appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't really know but that could or and it could also be that there's areas that are have this it's the, the the material conditions of the areas that don't get captured in this term slum non-slum agsn non-agsn so so this work informs particularly researchers who are doing this work because we you can access this data you can download it you know if you can read portuguese you can you know you can access these, these databases um they're changing uh, policies have changed in Brazil now that may may limit that access for foreign researchers, and I don't have all the answers <laughs> to that one yet. But that's another that's another story. Um, but you know, there for I think for for researchers to 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 know that when they're going to be getting data that's you know, from afar, that you you have to understand the limitations of that, and it's it's actually could be detrimental. If we use these data and we claim that it says something meaningful about the world and our social world um, that isn't there, that's not there just because mm -hmm. the data isn't there. Right. So these big data can merely mean big gaps of knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, we know a lot about some areas, but we also know very little about others. And so that's part of that work. The other piece is within the place and health research has been a big move towards understanding how place impacts health. And it's thinking about place relationally, that, you know, it's not static within the borders of your community, you know, or like the neighborhood or your census tract or your zip code, that these, these are proxies, they're, they approximate, you know, our place, but they're not 
they don't determine it. You know, they don't, they don't define it neatly or cleanly. And so there's been moves to look at how we move through space, you know, kind of where the different um, daily transitions. And I think that work is really important. But I also think that there's, that there's a need to look at the data that we do have and, and see what can we make meaningful from that data. And so by doing these kind of validation techniques, looking to see, is there a way to take that address information to find to what scale can we approximate, you know, place with the data that we currently have? How much can we trust it? So it's, it's kind of helping us to, to, as we move towards seeing the, thinking about place dynamically and people moving through place dynamically, that we also aren't leaving on the table the data and the potential good that it can, can yield. You know, that we can still make some meaning in limitations with the data that we have. So those are kind of the, the two thrusts of what my work is trying to, to address. A lot of your work focuses on the environment and how that affects our health. Can you talk a little bit about how that, um, how is that related with issues like climate change, for example? Uh. So I don't I don't do work in climate change, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a big gap in my knowledge. Um, but I will say that the it's it's undeniable that changing climate is going to have disparate disparate and disproportionate impacts in different parts of the world, mm -hmm. and even within areas like let's take Rio de Janeiro for example. You know the it's area that will experience greater you know some sea level rise, so the low lying lands will be impacted. Mm -hmm. Some of that is actually the higher wealth areas. Right. But the other thing that comes with not just sea level rise, but greater increase in, in um, inundation or, you know, higher levels of rain is a lot of the communities that live on those hillsides. You know, there have been landslides, mm -hmm. you know, actually one of the neighbor, the neighborhood um, that I looked at for this mapping work, um, you know, actually had experienced a landslide in 2011. Um, and so these these are the the kinds of impacts that will happen where. Regionally, you know, folks will experience higher rain, mm -hmm. but those pockets, you know, will experience greater impacts of that rain, right? So there are parts of the city that have those basic services like that, you know, the, 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 the paved roads and sewage that can move rain out, you know, quickly. The areas where they don't have that, you know, and particularly if the, if the, if the construction is on these kind of precarious spots, you know, they'll be more impacted. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, I think a, a need to understand kind of which areas are more vulnerable, sure. you know, where we need to do that investment, but also not to just say, okay, well, we're just going to move you out. You can't live here, but actually how can we make interventions? And so this is something I have colleagues, um, it's been, I'm been trying, I'm weaving it into my research, but I have these, these colleagues, I'm on the board of Catalytic Communities. Uh, uh, it's a nonprofit in Rio de Janeiro that they work towards bridging together, um, bringing together these favela communities. And they use the word favela intentionally, but they also work with comunidades and other folks who aren't in these official favelas who don't use that term. Um, but it's both in reframing what favela means, mm -hmm. you know, acknowledging the positive side, also, uh, a space for for kind of fomenting uh, a cross fertilization or cross um, uh, of these ideas. And so, one of the things that we've done actually, and um, uh, we had some folks last year in my um, in my environmental analysis senior clinic, is helping the this organization develop a sustainability a sustainable favela indicator. So, how well mm. how how sustainable can these favelas be? Mm. And this really emerged from around the Olympics when. You know, there were these new developments happening in Rio where folks were saying, oh, you know what, there, there's this lead platinum or lead, there's actually this new designation called lead community. Um, 
And this, you know, one of these, you know, I think the Olympic Village or something like that was built. And it is this kind of lead standard for a community. And within that, there was a, a framework of, okay, is it people using transit, recycling rates, and, you know, uh, limited use of electricity, that kind of stuff. And so someone's like, oh, well, these communities are been doing that kind of stuff. So they looked to see, does this favela, you know, how would that match up? And they actually found that the, the favela beat out the this brand really? new construction for its sustainability metric, you know. And so my yeah. students, you know, in my class, you know, I had this, because in the EA senior clinic, um, we have the opportunity for graduating seniors to work in small groups with a real world project from a partner. And so my involvement with this, with catalytic communities brought them to work with them to help them develop a sustainable favela indicator. We also been mapping uh, the various sustainable type projects that folks are doing. And that's one of my goals this year is actually to make that into a story map that can be shared more broadly. Um, there's something that captures, you know, the the variety of these projects, which is biodigesters bio um, or uh, recycling programs um, or, or, you know, community gardens, solar panels. When, you know, these kinds of projects that are happening at these small scale through these communities throughout Rio one is a way to bring them together so they can see who's doing this work, having a way for them to communicate with each other, mm -hmm. and then also sharing that with, to the world to also reframe the possibility that the favela can be a space for innovation and that it's not, that there's nothing inherent about these communities that do, while they may be experiencing deprivations um, that have been, you know, for various reasons, that there's nothing inherent about them that should be, that they should be deprived and that they can rely on each other you know, when the government hasn't stepped in to provide them with services. So it's, and we're, so we're mapping this out as well and kind of showing this possibility of like, you know, imagining what that future looks like that we can, um, so we can create these kind of changes at the small scale, but then can we share it out? And, you know, you asked about kind of this kind of different scales approach and the, I think it's really important that we highlight what's happening successfully at the small scale and not to say, okay, we'll take the best and we'll just apply that everywhere. Mm -hmm. Because that, I think, is the big challenge is that, you know, all of while there may be some universal or global themes that emerge um, from these projects, they need to be applied with care and consideration for the locality, mm -hmm. for the people who are there, for the histories of how those people got there, how they were pushed there, how they got, you know, pulled there, um, you know, and, you know, what makes meaningful, what meaningful changes can we do? that won't cause further harm to them, right. and particularly the folks who have been harmed so much in the past. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that environmental science is very interdisciplinary, and yeah. it seems to me that your work is is a good illustration of that. Um, the, can you talk about how you build the kinds of collaborations you need to do this kind of work? Yeah. So it's, it's really important to work with others, and it's also really challenging to work with others. Um, <laughs> And I've actually been modeling this in my in my environmental analysis class. We kind of have these these frameworks of one of the key frameworks is um, relationship building, and I think it's it's something that some of us you know just, we're doing it, but we're not conscious about it. You know, it's caring about the people you work with. You know, being being present, being open. You know, having that dialogue. But also understanding the differences in our positionality, you know, and kind of I think this is really where uh, the understanding of the privileged positions that we have 
and the ways in which aspects of our identity have been marginalized, but also that these aren't fixed and that these shift and shape, you know, that they reshape in different areas. And I tell this to my students, you know, like, you know, when we, you know, we're thinking about these deprivations that we have in the world, you know, the aspects of my identity as an Afro-Mexicano queer, you know, these are positions that have been marginalized. And yet here I am at this, you know, elite private, you know, small liberal arts college, and I'm the person with the most authority in the room. So these, these, these salient identities that we carry, you know, we need to decouple, you know, their positionality from the way they've been positioned. And I think that's an important aspect of building relationships because it also, it lets us be more empathetic mm -hmm. to, to listen to others, to understand that people actually experience the world differently. And if we're trying to work together, how can we, how can we work together to understanding those differences? Um, and I also really push self-reflection because it really takes that kind of thought process to think about, you know, what we're doing, why we're doing that work, you know, um, so we can, so we can, you know, remind ourselves why this work is important, you know, and so those are two key aspects that I, that I keep in terms of these collaborations. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's something that's, that's challenging to do um, because of the different demands that are, you know, made on our time, but, you know, really having collaborators that are interested in the projects that, you know, that you can rely on and you being able to be relied on by them, you know, so like my folks who I'm traveling, who I'm working with in Brazil, you know, it, it's far away, right? <laughs> I can't be there all the time. But, you know, we use uh, WhatsApp to communicate or we use, you know, uh, Skype to have our, you know, meetings. Can you um, give us an example of the kinds of collaborations that yeah. it takes for that? I'm, I'm sure yeah, people so in for the project, people in politics. Yeah. So for this project in Brazil um, with the community health workers, you know, so we've got folks who are at UFI, the, the Federal University of Niteroi, and folks who are working with the community health, um, the, the, these community health workers in San Gonzalo. Um, and so we were collaboratively building this, this, this application, this kind of survey tool that um, these community health workers are going to be using. And, you know, so it involves, you know, meetings. I rely on my, my colleagues in Brazil to, to, make those to make those interactions with the community health workers and um, with the, the Ministry of Health down there, one, because they're closer. And I think the work they're doing is, is you know, they've already had those conversations. And so, you know, for me being this far, it's, it, I don't get to, you know, have as much interaction as I would like. Mm -hmm. um, but so it really relies on the fact that I had built up that relationship with them during my postdoc. You know, I was working with them, mm -hmm. you know, seeing them weekly. And then when I left, I made this commitment to work with them for the next five years. You know, didn't know where else, you know, what, what was going to come of it. But it, I wanted to make a commitment to them. And I think that was another key is just making that commitment and then showing up. And then, you know, getting to go down there, you know, to to have those in-person, in, you know, face-to-face -face interactions, but also, you know, being responsive. And so I, I also... Um, as part of this larger collaborative, you know, we've, I've been helping them to map the data that they've got. So I, I become a resource for them to, to map their data, um, as well as, you know, helping them to develop this project. Mm -hmm. Guillermo, can you tell us what you're working on now? So, so that's what I'm working on is mm -hmm. this community health worker. So mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're writing up this papers about, you know, the mapping the health posts and mapping, you know, these fixed locations mm -hmm. in, um, in Rio. Uh, and then we're we're actually trying to launch this um, you know effort to have community health workers go out and start collecting data um, from these patients. We got our approval from the IRB in Brazil. Um, 
so that we can do that work down there. Mm -hmm. I'm working to get that over here mm -hmm. so that I can analyze the data. I'm not involved in any of the collection. Right. Um, and that was an intentional aspect because it's challenging to get this kind of international, uh, you know, uh, research projects. So sure. having local um, folks, you know, actually mm -hmm. spearhead them mm -hmm. is really important. Um, so but the, the, what we're doing is actually setting up when we actually start collecting that data. So we need to refine our methods for figuring out how well we can um, view these locations. Um, and so we can actually apply that to the data that we're, that's coming into us. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, I actually have another project where um, I've been working with some colleagues at UC Berkeley. Um, we're calling it the Undisciplined Scholars Collective. And the idea is thinking about how do we think about interdisciplinary work? How do we think about you know, work that involves uh, this intersectional identities? Um, you know, we are, you know, as scholars of color, you know, scholars, queer scholars, scholars who have been on the margins, you know, within academia, and then be in the margins of disciplines because we're not in a discipline, you know, you know mm. interdisciplinary. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And so I think it, mm. in some ways it's, it's, it's this, we're actually in this transition moment where there has been a greater attention to interdisciplinary work. There's been greater attention to the ideas of creating inclusive environments and the importance of having um, diverse people in diverse views. Um, and yet we still are, are stuck, but we're, we're, we're doing a better job, but stuck with these kind of, this idea of kind of uh, you, the discrete identities, mm -hmm. you know? Interdisciplinarity in the past has been, oh, we have a biologist and we have a social scientist and we have, you know, uh, <laughs> this other, you know, person. Or and in some fields, interdisciplinarity is, you know, I do different branches of biology, right? And it's so it, it has a lot of meanings for folks. And then identities, you know, it's like you're black, you're white, you're, you know, and folks like myself or Afro-Mexicano, like parents are from Mexico and the, my dad has more saliently, you know, African, you know, ancestry, a history that I don't really wasn't raised with knowing, but have come to understand as I've gotten older. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do we, when we're perceived one way because of the way we look and the categories people expect us to be or the way we speak, uh, you know, that all, we bring that into these spaces. And so thinking about this undisciplined scholars is a way of thinking about, you know, how do we be inclusive in our work? How do we think of our, our work interdisciplinary? Interdisciplinary. How do we integrate that? Uh, and how do we think about the intersections, right? And so it's both for the scholars and for the scholarship, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that we need to to be having these conversations. And so the idea is to start um, finding ways that we, as scholars who do this work, who embody these differences can both create a space for us to come together mm -hmm. and to also to think about ways that we can uh, define this work, I think, for future scholars. And in many ways, we're pulling from what others have done. Um, but I think there's an, there's, there's an important aspect of within the environmental field because it's already an interdisciplinary field. You know, there's so many permutations. So what can we do to bring folks together to have these conversations, and so we're 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 still working through um, some writing projects, and you know some some we're launching things off uh, AAG next year. We're kind of starting slow, but that's something to look out for. And your students have to navigate that too, yeah. right? How do you help them do that? Yeah, I mean, so that's it's really I think it that's still a challenge. You know, like what does that look like for them? And I think the what I try to do is I try to model for them kind of 
one that every path is 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 a path mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and their path they need to find their path and i actually think about it kind of uh you know, I do maps, so I think about maps and I see this kind of the world with maps. And I think about, you know, helping students create their own map, their own pathway, right? And it's it, it's not about, I mean, if they were in a field like law, um, there's some fairly clear pathways. You do pre-law, you know, there's a number of different entry points, but then you go to law school, you pass the bar, you become a lawyer. And that is an oversimplification of what lawyers mean. And I totally know that, but I think there's still the pathway is clearer mm-hmm. for folks who are studying law. If you're doing medicine, you know, same thing. You do a pre-med major. Um, you do your med school. You get residency. You get you know, you get to become a doctor. And again, lots of kind of doctors out there. Lots of kind of medical doctors. Um, but this this path feels more more clear. Mm-hmm. Environmental work. I mean, there are so many entry points. You know, you could be interested in the humanities, you know, the kind of the esoteric view of nature and kind of being in nature and having that, you know, creating some beautiful poetry that is environmental. You could be, you know, thinking about the philosophical thought of what does it mean to be nature? What does it mean to be, you know, human? You know, what does it mean to have these impacts? Right. And so there can be this kind of philosophical approach. You could be thinking about the the very technical aspects. You know, how do we how do we capture the the. The qualities of, of air pollution, you know, what's the best measures that we can use, you know, uh, there, you know, you can also be thinking about being an activist and kind of how do you motivate folks to to care and to make these policies and to protect, you know, the, to protect the world. And, you know, so there's so many different mm-hmm. entry points and there's mm-hmm. so many different paths and there's so many different endpoints. And it's like, how do we see ourselves as a collective? Are we in any way collected? Mm-hmm. And so I think what I try to do in my class is both to acknowledge that, you know, we have all these different starting points and we're going to have different endpoints. But while we're here, can we create a community mm-hmm. that is welcoming and encompassing of all of us, you know, that think about each other as related, you know, even if we're not drawing clear boxes around each other, but kind of how do we build those relationships? And that's what I try to do. Uh, in my classroom with the students that I work with, you know, I, I welcome them to bring their questions to me and I push them to think about, you know, the different scales that those questions operate in, the people that are impacted in the places with the histories that, you know, put them there. Um, and and how are, how are people differently impacted? How does, what, is, what does it look like to, you know, on the ground and, you know, in globally? You've written that when you first arrived at Pomona, some of the deans uh, said, uh, or well, welcomed you by saying, we've been waiting for you. Yeah. Why did that provoke such a visceral reaction from you? Uh, it does now, too. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, having had this long winding path, it's, there are so many times in my career where I felt like I wasn't where I wanted to be. I wasn't there yet. And... It was so much of that kind of desire to get to a place to to do the work that I want to do, um, you know, to teach, to be a professor, to to be working, you know, to make the world better and not feeling like I was that I'd gotten there. And so when I was told, you know, like, and, and this came from I had been hired, I got I got the, the offer and then I had also had gotten a postdoc in Brazil. So I negotiated a later start date to to be able to do the postdoc in Brazil and then to come back, you know, and then start teaching here. 
And so the deans were literally waiting for me. They were literally <laughs> waiting because they'd be like, oh, you know, as the new faculty get oriented, it's like it makes sense that they're going to, uh, you know, they have to get everything in place. Mm -hmm. And so when I arrived, you know, my my name had been in conversation, you know, to not forget that I'm coming. Um, and so there was this idea that they were waiting for me. And I really it, it really it, it hit me, this idea that I've arrived mm -hmm. and you know, this isn't the end by any means, but it was certainly uh, a moment of, of, of both allowing myself to, to feel like this is a place where I could be, you know. And then also um, I was asked to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm advising uh, my mentees, uh, first year mentees, and I got to think about, you know, they wrote these beautiful letters to me introducing themselves, you know, I think all, I think this is something we do here where the, the people's incoming, um, incoming uh, first years, they have to write a letter to their, their first year advisor and give them a story about themselves. And it was, these were very personal. They were very vulnerable. And I thought, wow, like they're sharing so much with me. How that it felt, it felt very uneven. Here I was, I knew so much about them and they knew nothing about me. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about it and I got to write this, this, this letter to them, uh, and I, and, I, and I reflected on this kind of, you know, because I do that self-reflection myself. I think about, you know, how, how to connect with these students and, you know, reminding, remembering when I was arriving and kind of thinking about how the way I was being waited for. I was like, you know, I've actually been waiting for these too. I've been waiting for these students. I don't know them. I, have, I don't know who they were. I didn't know what, what to expect, but I have been waiting for them. And so I wanted to write a letter to them to tell them that I was waiting for them, share them my story, um, but also welcoming them. So on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, our thanks to environmental analysis professor Guillermo Douglas Hymas for sharing with us his uh, journey to becoming a, a college professor and his work on environmental justice. Thanks. Thank you very much. And to all who've stuck with us thus far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.